you never, you never do that. You never put the snow shovel away. What's the matter with you? Hey, it's Pete Pomisano here on another episode of RLTP's Off-Road. Welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks. Yeah. And uh, this week, we're going to take a little side trip off the theatrical road. We try to do this like once every, you know, once every third episode. We try to bring you something that's just about Buffalo. And and if it sounds like I'm trying to be semi-educational here, it's because, well, I'm trying to be semi-educational. Because we've all heard about and we know the name Oshai. We know the name Oshai from the Oshai Children's Hospital. We know it because we hear it in terms of all sorts of charitable works around town. But maybe you've never bothered investigating. What the heck is the John R. Oshai Foundation? Well, <laughs> I got some news for you, my friend. We're going to talk about it today with Christina Orsi, who was named the president, the first female president of the John R. Oshai Foundation. The first female president in 80 80-some years. So that's that's pretty exciting. So I'll be talking to her, and you're going to learn a lot about Buffalo, about her plans for the Oshai Foundation, and about are we headed in the right direction. But I'll let her tell you more about that when we actually get to the interview. But we're going to start off, first of all, with another edition of our LTP Ensemble at Work Elsewhere. And the person we're going to spotlight today is a person we just heard from a couple of episodes ago in a full episode about Doug Schiedner. But I thought we'd bring him back again because he's going to talk about the senior showcase at Niagara University. And that's one of the things that he does at his real job, where he is a professor out there at NU. And also, yeah, let's face it, it's also a plug for the next play coming up at RLTP, which is going to open very soon on March 3rd. It's called Tribes. You don't want to miss that. So let's start things off with Doug talking a little bit about his, his other work out at NU where they will soon be highlighting the Senior Showcase, which I think is just the coolest idea. And oh yeah, by the way, Doug will talk about Tribes again. It's opening this Thursday, March 3rd, here on RLTP's Off-Road. Well, we're not here to talk about Tribes, but what the heck, yeah. let's, let's just talk about it a second. How are things going? Very well. We had almost a full run last night for the first time with everybody there. And there were big problems with things like cleaning the table in the dining room scene. So we're managing it and it's going to be remarkable. It's going to be remarkable, but it's not going to be remarkable until the last minute. Of course it won't. Yeah. Do you have uh, on the dining? Do you have food and such on the table? Yeah. There's a that there, there starts with a, a very chaotic dining room scene, and oh, we had we didn't have both of the people here who were cleaning the table until <laughs> last night, and so they were dropping things. It's gonna... funny because I'm the show that I'm doing that opens on the same day. We also have food. Yeah. And last night we brought in food for the first time. It's just salad, uh -huh. and it's so funny as an actor. You know this as an actor trying to decide how big a bite can I take and still make it look reasonable and also how big a bite can i take and swallow it in time to say my next words and yeah. not get practice it does i don't think people understand well of course they don't understand but when you're in a play and you have food on the table as you will with your actors you have to plan the bites you have to plan when you're going to take a sip of the wine. You have to plan when you're going to swallow. So you're finished in time for your next line. It's it's the silliest thing, but we you have to have food rehearsals. Yeah. It's crazy. 
Well, I'm looking forward to it. I saw a picture of the set the other day. And of course, I talked to the lovely Lynn Koshilniak, and mm. she was very excited about it. And I saw a picture and it, it looks much like she described and it, it looks like it's going to be very cool. So we have a great team. We have a great, great, great team. I can see that. So, so let's talk about what is coming up very soon. Yeah. And that is, uh, again, this is our LTP ensemble at work elsewhere and where you work elsewhere, you know, you just have a little gig you do on the side at Niagara University and uh, <laughs> where, where you throw in a few, t you know, a few hours every now and then. And the thing that's coming up very soon, what is it? March? Friday, March 11th. Okay. March 11th uh, is the senior showcase. And we talked about it a little bit in our big interview, but I would like to rehash it just quickly about what it is and what it does for the kids. So take it away. The Senior Showcase is something that I elaborated on and expanded on when I got to Niagara 15, almost 15 years ago. There was a talent show at the end of the semester for the seniors, and they just had a big, wonderful, fun, raucous time just demonstrating what they had been doing up to this point. I'm using it now for three purposes. One, to give them an opportunity to work in something like a professional audition situation. So so we've added a four o'clock on Fridays in the spring live, except last year was virtual. This year it's back live, where we rent a space in downtown Buffalo and invite professionals to come and see their work. For the students, it's the chance to get work in Buffalo, which Buffalo has a remarkable appreciation of the Niagara students. And I don't, I love that that happens. And so we find directors and producers willing to come year after year, even though the shows are mostly cast by now, they're willing to come and listen to uh, new people. And then the third reason is the students need a place to polish their best material. They each get two and a half minutes and this is their best monologue and their best song if they're a great singer. If they're not, then two monologues that somehow contrast. We put it together as an event, not as an audition. We have them pass off the scenes to each other, and we give the directors and producers the chance to take home pictures and resumes. And so this is the chance for the students to the seniors to have a good, solid resume and a solid picture that fits the industry standards. All of that both helps get them work in Buffalo, but it also helps them prepare to be a professional. And what I love about it, and, and our talent show is one thing, it's fun for the kids and so on, but this is a real world experience. Yeah. And as, as a former teacher, anything that actually puts them in a situation where they're learning something while also having fun and what they're learning is very, very similar to what a real world situation will be where they are auditioning in front of strangers. And as you said, doing their best to put out their best material and their, their best foot forward. And we do, we do the fun part too. Uh, we do this at four o'clock and then at eight o'clock, we invite all the friends and the family and the rest of the department to come down. We do the first hour of the nice polished professional stuff. And then they have an hour to just have a good time and to do all that crazy stuff that maybe they won't get hired to do, but they want to show off. So we, we've got the best of both worlds going right now with this. So let me ask you, after because I've been lucky enough to attend, and I will be attending again. 
again this year. The first hour, when mm-hmm. you have the so-called professionals all out, out there watching it, is there a huge difference in the sort of sigh of relief that takes place during the, the parents and the in the fun hour that happens later on? Is it once it's all over, they could just all <gasps> relax and have have a ball? Often, that's the result. <laughs> Often, we, we'll, we'll go back and talk about it the next day, and they'll say they did better with the professional material in front of their families than they did with the professionals. And that's the learning experience of that you can control. You can control what kind of energy you're bringing in and how much fun you're having, whether it's your family and your profession. But they only learn that once they've experienced that. And I've seen a lot of, a lot of great talent there. And for the those who don't know, the, the Niagara University representation in Buffalo local theater is huge. I mean, long before the, the Bills Mafia, there was a running gag about the Niagara Mafia. When mm. you'd get in a show with maybe 10, 15 people, especially if it was a musical and you're in a large cast and all of a sudden there are five of them congregated in the corner and they're all NU graduates from mm. various years. I don't mean from just you know 2019. There's, oh, I graduated in 1994 and I graduated in 2001. And it's just, they, you guys have done such a fabulous job of preparing these kids for the real work of entertainment and for, for a real world occupation. It's a really challenging program. We're auditioning the uh, incoming freshmen just last week. And uh, one of the things we talk about is this is a hard place to go to school. We are going to work you more hours than anybody else. And we are going to expect you to get good at everything, not just, oh, I only want to be on musical theater. We're going to get you the production experience. We're going to give you the chance to discover other things so that even if only all you do is be an actor, you're going to know what the other people in the team are doing so that you can be a better performer and you can be a better theater maker with a capital T. We also don't stop with talking about theater. We give them five semesters of theater history. They're getting the full BA. They have all the academic rigor of bigger academic institutions. And we're not just choosing between making them skilled and making them smart. They have to be both or they're not going to function in the world. And do they also, something Lynn said in the last interview, she said everybody should be a stage manager once because they really learn about what goes on behind the scenes and what it's like to deal with us actors. So do, do the kids get to do uh, or learn various technical and behind the scenes things as well and have the opportunity to perform those roles? Absolutely. They uh, have a choice, some choice in what crew assignment. They have a crew assignment every semester. They're not necessarily cast every semester, but they do something to support the show. And that's Uh, where they learn. Often it's stage managing for the really smart ones, because the stage manager is not a good place to put someone who's learning. (laughs) They already have to know what they're doing in order to make the rest of of the students learn from the experience. But we have some very dedicated stage managers. And we, we put them through that so that they can be comfortable in every position and understand the, the bigger scope besides just how many lines do they have. 
Well, well, that's great. And how many kids will you have participating this year in the in the senior showcase? Uh, we have 14. We have a new aspect of Niagara with a specialization. Besides design production and performance, we now have a choreography specialization. Hmm. So we have a student who is graduating as a choreographer. So she's going to be choreographing one of the group numbers in classes, and she's going to be doing her own dance presentation as part of her audition. And you do have some of the kids there who are into other aspects of design and they bring a portfolio yeah. of their, let's say, costume design or set designs or even lighting design. So it's not all about performance, although many kids will, I mean, nearly all of them perform, correct? Right. There might be one that, or two that don't, but it's it's basically showcases everything that goes on at Niagara. And I just, I just think it's a great program. And I That's the learning side of the design production aspect of our company. We ask them to have professional material ready to show at the end of this event. So we're inviting them to come on Friday and have a table in the lobby and talk to the professionals in the same way that uh, that the actors do. And they come with their resume. They come with a, with a beautiful headshot. Yeah. As I said, it's a real world sort of experience. I know there are people who perform there because I've seen people. Dan Ertz. Dan Ertz was there. I remember seeing Dan Ertz for the first time there. I ended up casting somebody Kathleen Denicky. Uh -huh. I ended up casting her in a show at the Kavanoki after that. So it happens maybe down the lane, although this is not an exact exactly an audition, but but it is very much replicating what happens when you do audition. This is also one of the challenges of teaching theater and teaching the business of theater is there are certain things that are industry standard. This is the way you do a resume. This is the way you do a picture. Uh, we have a structure. And then there is an infinite opportunity to market yourself, to get a hold of directors, to figure out how to manage auditions. All of these very subjective things that they have to know along with the objective specific things. And we try to give them both. And these opportunities to put on more productions than any other theater department puts in in a year in school, and then also do these works where we reach into the community, like the Senior Showcase, that's the purpose of all that, so that they've learned by doing it. The business of theater and the business of being a theater practitioner is a lot more than just memorizing your lines especially if, if you're going to make a career out of some aspect of theater. And there are many aspects of theater that there are many more that are not performance-based. It's the only profession that you are the product and the salesman. You are selling yourself, quite literally. Mm -hmm. And I've known a lot of actors who are really talented and really effective performers, but don't know how to market themselves. Mm -hmm. And other actors that are good, but competent performers, but they're good at marketing. And once they get hired, you want to work with them again. And so they get more work sometimes than the talented people yeah. because they have both. Doug Chigner, it's been a pleasure talking to you again, sir. Please come see Tribes. We're so happy to be actually getting something live. I will be there on a Sunday afternoon because we don't have any shows on Sundays. Good. And I am so excited and so looking forward to it. So The world is opening back up. Best of luck to you and the entire cast. It's a great cast. I will see you soon, my friend. Thank you very much for your time. Take care, Doug. Bye-bye. Okay, so that's Doug Cheegner, and I promise we won't bring Doug back for at least, oh, at least a couple of weeks. But what a great guy, and he's doing great work out there at Niagara. What a theatrical program they have. 
If your kids are interested in theater, that's the place to go, believe me. And now, it's time to talk to Christina Orsi, who was named back in December as the first woman president of the John R. Oishai Foundation. It's terrific. We're breaking the glass ceilings all over the place. Here's Christina here on RLTP's Off-Road. Let me start, first of all, by introducing the fact that you made Buffalo history when you were named the first female president of the John R. Oshai Foundation after a nationwide search, I understand. And you just took over on January 24th. So tell me what that first... <laughs> those first few days were like, and then I, and I want to get into your past a little bit, but tell me what it was like the first few days of stepping into this incredible, well-known organization. It really was a privilege to be selected to lead the Oshai Foundation on its next chapter, and uh, very exciting because one of the first things I get to do is lead us through a new five-year strategic plan and, and you know work with the board and the fabulous team here to think about how do we continue to grow the impact that we've uh, had in the community. So, you know, one month in and uh, everything is great getting to, you know, meet the uh, Oshai team members who are just uh, so well embedded in the community and have such a great uh, understanding of our, our grantee and community partners, working with our board of directors and really spending a lot of time now meeting with, you know, external stakeholders who are working throughout our community trying to um, affect impact and change. Well, Christina, I, I mean, the obvious question for me is, was this something that you foresaw in your future? Was it something you you pursued or you looked to achieve or or was it, I mean, it couldn't have been too much of a surprise or was it? Uh, it was definitely a surprise, a wonderful surprise. You know, prior to this, I was working at the University of Buffalo leading economic development and uh, very happy doing that. Had been there seven years. In many ways, I felt like we were just hitting our stride. We had spent a lot of time putting a strategic plan in place and all the fundamental pieces to you know, grow more entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, so I was not looking, you know, for a new opportunity. But frankly, you know, when um, the recruiters uh, reached out and we started talking about uh, the opportunity at the Oshai Foundation, I obviously knew about just the tremendous legacy of the foundation and the impact that they've had across a really broad portfolio uh, in our community. And, you know, it was very exciting to me to be part of the next evolution of the foundation and lead it through a strategic plan. And my entire career, I've chosen to be in roles where I can make a positive impact on our community. And this was another way in which I could do that by leading this foundation. Well, that brings up a good question because I, I'm always fascinated by people of your ilk who have devoted so much of their lives to helping better their community. I mean, you were, I'm not exactly sure when this happened, but you were even named a Buffalo Business First Woman of Influence at some point. So this has been growing and you were on the Power 250 list of influential people and all of these sort of distinguished titles seem to set you up for a position like this. How did it feel to be given those sorts of titles? Well, of course, that's always, always nice to be recognized for your work. But I think what 
you know, what really does matter to me and motivates me is, am I actually uh, working with other partners to be impactful in our community? And that, that's what drives me, right? And so over the last 25 years, it's been more focused in economic development and, you know, to have played a role in so many of the major initiatives and projects in the community, you know, from launching the 43 North Business Plan competition to uh, the Northland Workforce Training Center, the Smart Growth Initiatives, you know, it's just, it was, it was really, you know, exciting to be able to be part of that and, to be a partner with so many different organizations from nonprofits to local governments, to state government, to universities, to you know, enable the growth of our economy. Well, as I was just saying, there's just something about people who do this kind of work. And I'm a, I'm a huge Buffalo supporter and I, my whole family has moved out of town, but I refuse to leave. I, I'm, not, I'm not going anywhere. And, and so I'm always interested by, and I've spoken to another, a few other people like this in the podcast, and I do want to know what motivated you to get into this sort of work. I'm, I'm fascinated by the sort of work that you do. What, what drives you? What, what motivated you to begin with? How do you get into this sort of philanthropic work? Yeah, yeah, you certainly don't think when you're, you know, young uh, adult or professional, oh, I'm going to become an economic developer. I didn't even know what that was. Um, So, you know, so I guess really, first of all, I'm not from Buffalo. I grew up in the Rochester area and I came here to go to graduate school at UB for urban planning and public policy. And I suppose that really set my course, right? Because that was the first opportunity that I had to start to get embedded in the community and understand Uh, what was going on from an urban development and planning. And that was really interesting. And as I just got to, there's just something about Buffalo, you know, and only people who have lived here, and I think mostly people who have lived somewhere else and then lived here, really totally feel it and appreciate it, whether it's just the people that have grit and are so welcoming (laughs) to, you know, the fabulous history and architecture and diversity and legacy of innovation. There's just, I don't know, there's something about this community that I fell in love with and um, wanted to be part of making it better. And really when I, you know, when I started, that was late 80s, early 90s, frankly, Buffalo was still going through a decline, right? We were still losing more businesses every year than we were growing and gaining, losing jobs still trying to transition from an historically manufacturing industrial to a more diversified economy, you know, population decline. It was, it was a challenging time, but I guess I have always been the type of person that looks at a challenge as an opportunity. So I, I knew that we had a lot of the foundation for a great community, right? And so being able to be part of uh, working with different organizations to figure out how we can start to grow, diversify the community, and enable it to be, you know, the thriving uh, region that it could be was really what drove me. And I just had an opportunity to do that through a lot of different roles and organizations. Well, you are originally from Rochester, am I correct? And do you see a big difference between Rochester and Buffalo? Was there something, I mean, I feel like Buffalo has a a more storied history and, and therefore probably had a lot more to lose. And, you know, Rochester, of course, lost Kodak and and those sorts of things. But I feel like Buffalo went from this gigantic powerhouse, you know, after the canal and so on came in, we became this 
I don't know, second or third largest city. And, and suddenly we had so much more to lose. So let's talk a little bit about your, your time in Rochester and, and how you found things different. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely differences, but there's similarities. And I think, you know, when I was growing up in Rochester, we went through the first of the big declines of the Kodiak and Xeroxes, right? So it was a very white collar town versus Buffalo was built on more of an industrial. And I would say they were later in starting to really see their decline because it wasn't until, you know, the 90s, late 80s that you started to see major shedding of jobs from mm -hmm. those big uh, corporations. And then, you know, a sort of hollowing out of the city. And I think it's just taken Rochester a lot longer to start its, its revitalization and, again, diversify its economy. But there's also a lot of similarities, right? I think we're both very much growing entrepreneur communities. And actually, we've collaborated with them. We both have strong you know, universities and colleges and education systems. Mm -hmm. You know, we both have experienced tremendous both sprawl combined with population decline, which has posed all kinds of challenges that are in common for both communities. So really looking at how do we, you know, help revitalize our urban centers and our, our village centers and, you know, rehab uh, infrastructure. And, and frankly, we also unfortunately both share that despite the economic gains that both communities, you know, have made and are making, we're still amongst the highest in concentrated poverty in both communities. Uh. And, you know, that's also part of what frankly brought me to Oshai is sort of despite all the economic gains and growth, that I've had an opportunity to play a, a role in, uh, we haven't really moved the needle on, on poverty and reducing poverty in our community. And so that says to me, then we need to think about how we're doing some things differently to ensure that everyone has an opportunity and can benefit from the prosperity and growth mm -hmm. that occurs in our community. Would it be fair to say that Buffalo really had that sort of industrial rust belt history and Rochester had more of an early tech with, you know, as you said, with Kodak and, and Xerox, that is what differentiated the two? Definitely one of the biggest differences. Yeah. yeah. And did you, were you raised, uh, th this is always interesting to me as well. So you're raised in Rochester, you went to Fairpoint and you had siblings or what did your parents do? How, let's start with that. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom for the first 10 years, and then she worked in a dental office as an office uh, manager and administrator. And my father was in a variety of different sales and business development roles. And I have one sister, older sister, who's done everything from uh, HR consulting at major corporations to being her own author. So nobody was doing city building or, or economic development. It's It's just so amazing to me where these things come from. So you, you go to college and, and you, you you went to Fredonia at first uh, mm -hmm. and for political science. Again, yeah. how does this even fit in? And somehow, well, first of all, why Fredonia? Why did you pick there? First of all, our SUNY schools really are fabulous, mm -hmm. right? Great education at a very affordable rate. And so, you know, SUNY was far enough from home, but not too far <laughs> uh, in a really good school. So and I had a, I had a really good undergraduate experience there in political science. I actually got to spend a semester doing an internship in Albany in the state legislature, Wow, which was a wow. great experience. But also, you know, you learn so much from doing right. I also learned I didn't actually want to work 
in the legislature from that experience, but it, but I learned a ton, right? Was there something in high school interest? What spurred the interest in poli-sci? Uh, well, I was thinking about potentially going into uh, pre-law, and I think there were probably a couple things, honestly, in high school. One was we had visited and had the opportunity to speak to a number of people in the criminal justice system, and I still just remember that conversation. And I guess what I perceived uh, is some of the injustices in the system. Mm. And so, you know, I was thinking about going down a legal path around that to try to, you know, address that. And so poli-sci was a natural to go into pre-law. How interesting. When I was graduating from Fredonia, I applied to both law schools, which I was accepted in, but I was sort of trying to decide, do I want to go to school for three more years or do I want to go out and get a job? And so ultimately what appealed to me about the UB program in urban planning and public policy, it actually required an internship for the entire time you were in school, the two years that you were in school. So I kind of decided, you know what, I really want some work experience. So that offered me the blend of both. And my very first internship was with the Buffalo Niagara Partnership you know, the regional sort of think tank and and chamber of commerce. And it was, I just got immersed in what was going on in the economy and the business community through that experience. Would it be fair to say that that's where you developed this love for, and how, how did it happen? What was, what was there about it that was so appealing? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, just as, as a young, you know, just starting out in my career, I was still in graduate school. I got to be involved First of all, I, I got to be in rooms and meet with business leaders from across the region that you normally just wouldn't have the opportunity to get exposed to. But I, I got to lead things like um, there was a Canada-U.S. Business Association, a lot of work going on around how do we facilitate more cross-border trade. And so meeting with business leaders and bringing them together from Southern Ontario with uh, biz- Buffalo business leaders was one of the projects I got to work on. There was a major, in in partnership with, at the time, Leadership Buffalo, it was the very first ever community visioning and planning process called Vision for Tomorrow, Hmm. and Buffalo Niagara Partnership put me on that as a staff person to support it, and I got to work with, I don't know, probably 40 volunteers from across the community from all different backgrounds, and literally, we were doing a community-based visioning and planning, which I think was really the first time at that scale in our region. And that, that again, just the power of sort of having community involved in, in different stakeholders involved and thinking about what the future would look like for our uh, region was just a, an amazing experience. And to me, just really kind of resonated with the way that we need to think about how we plan and who we involve and how we move forward. And could you feel yourself shifting towards saying, now, I, I really see my focus shifting and, and really developing a, an affinity for this kind of work that you could feel it happening. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but I, <laughs> I did leave the after I graduated. I worked for the partnership for a couple of years and then I left and went and worked in the private sector. And I think that's when I really realized because I missed so much being involved in, you know, sort of the economic and community development and being involved in a way that would help improve our community. And so that's when I realized, I guess, when I stepped out of it and was in a private sector role for a while, that for me, I need to be in roles that are going to enable me to participate in in enhancing our community and our economy. Do you feel it yourself that you are 
as this is happening to you and as you are feeling it, are you saying, I can contribute to this? I feel like I have something to offer. Or do you just look and say, here are places of need and I think I can help work on these? Is it because of your you're looking at it yourself and this is what I can offer? Or do you just feel like somebody's got to do this? <laughs> I guess it was more that in doing the work, I felt like I was making a contribution towards, you know, helping our region. And so kind of the satisfaction, I guess, that I, I could get from, from that. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the, the diversity of the type of projects and opportunities and people that I got to work with along the way was uh, really interesting and, and appealing to me. Well, this this probably is a good time to just sort of interrupt and just I'm just going to run off a litany of all these agencies because I did some I did some research on you and I'm just going to run them off the Western New York Regional Economic Development Council. You played an integral role in the Buffalo Billion Development Plan, the Empire State Development Corporation, the Invest Buffalo Niagara, Buffalo Niagara Partnership. I could go on and on and you've been on the board the 43 North and Tech Buffalo, Invest Buffalo Niagara. You have really gotten around and done a a lot of meeting of people and uh, rubbing elbows with a lot of really significant movers and shakers, people who could really, as you said, help help our community. But let's move on to like the really big step before Oshai, which was Associate Vice President in the Office of Economic Development at, at UB. And first of all, when did that occur and how long did you spend in that position? Almost seven years. So I I, um, I was, I guess, recruited from uh, my role at Empire State Development over to the University of Buffalo. They had an opening in leading their economic development. And actually, when I was working at Empire State Development and leading the Regional Economic Development Council, I got to know President Satish Tripathi, the UB president, because he was mm-hmm. the co-chair, along with Howard Zemsky of the Regional Economic Development Council. So I think through that work, I started to get more exposed to the university's role and how it could be really impactful in our economy, both from obviously, you know, training and education and preparing the next generation of workforce. But University of Buffalo as a research engine, there was just a ton of innovation going on there. Mm. And so, you know, the opportunity to play a role in, in bringing more of that innovation out to be impactful to our community by helping start new companies from the innovations and the research and partnering with existing businesses to be able to capitalize and integrate in new products and research into improving, you know, their services. Can you, this may be an impossible question, but can you enumerate or just pick out one or two things that during your time at at UB that you thought were major accomplishments or major events that took place? It's just something so we get really get a handle on something concrete that went on. Because I know that, you know, UB is a, an economic power in, in the in Western New York, but to actually focus on or to talk about a specific thing, I'd sort of like to get a little more concrete. So UB, because it has a very strong uh, health sciences, right? It has a school of medicine, which mm-hmm. is now downtown, school of pharmacy, school of nursing, school of public health, school of dental medicine, and biomedical engineering. So very strong life sciences research activity going on at UB. And so as a result of that, what we would see is a lot of new discoveries in potential new pharmaceuticals, right? A potential discovery of a drug that might treat a disease, Mm -hmm. okay? 
But developing from the from the bench side discovery of I may have found a way to potentially treat Alzheimer's as an example or uh, any one of different diseases to actually developing that into a pharmaceutical drug that eventually can help millions of people is literally hundreds of millions of dollars and takes all kinds of commercial development expertise that a university does not have. So what we did was we actually formed a partnership with University of Rochester and Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. And we formed a nonprofit called the Empire Discovery Institute. And we partnered with New York State who provided the seed funding. And that nonprofit would uh, work with the faculty members who had these really early inventions and discoveries around potential new drug targets. Yes. And they would both fund them and bring the commercial, the business expertise on how do you take this drug target to develop it to the point where you can prove that it works in animal models. And then from there, then you eventually go to human clinical trials. So the goal is two things, right? One, in bringing it to the market, eventually you have some financial return so we can continue this type of development and work. Mm -hmm. And then the second, of course, is you're actually having a huge impact on the health and well-being, not just of our region, but well beyond if you're bringing new you know, drugs to the market. And that's a really long-term play, right? That's a 15-year trajectory. Your typical drug from discovery to market is 15 years in hundreds of millions of dollars in expertise. But we formed a really unique partnership and started to put together the seed funding to begin providing that pathway. And so I believe in 15 years, we, we will look back and see that, you know, I don't know, half a dozen, a dozen new drugs were developed here in our region, hopefully manufactured. So now you create jobs, right? Yes. And that you have this virtuous engine now of discovery and biopharmaceutical development going on. That's what could happen, but you had to have the right infrastructure and partners in place to do it. And that's one of the things that we seeded and developed while I was there that, again, long-term, right, uh, I think will provide a lot of benefits to our community and our region. Now, do you feel like this prepared you in some way? Because we, we have to talk about the OSHI Foundation for sure, but do you feel like in some way this prepared you for, I don't want to say for being president, but for even operating in the OSHI Foundation? Well, you know, I think my experiences, what, what prepared me was I always looked for opportunities to build partnerships. It's really rare that honestly, on your own, you can do something effectively. So I think what, what prepared me is you'll see consistently through my history, I looked for collaborations, partnerships, the ability to collectively co-fund, co-invest, co-develop. Um, I would say the other thing is, and the example I just gave you is innovative approaches. So when we find problems like, oh, we have all this great research, but not enough is translating into getting to the market and having an impact. Well, how do we solve that? So, you know, and in the, in the case of the Empire Discovery Institute, there was a similar nonprofit that had been formed downstate. So we looked at what their model was and, and we brought it here. So innovating and bringing 
you know, sort of best practices or innovative models to the region is something that, again, I think got consistently have done, whether it was Empire Discovery Institute, 43 North, the world's business plan competition that was launched out of Empire State Development when I was there as the regional director in the Buffalo Billion Plan. And again, we looked around at like other business plan competitions and said, how do we do it bigger and better so that we start to catalyze this entrepreneur activity in our region that we knew, you know, could could really be there. So I guess I would say that it's more how I worked, collaboration and building partnerships, mm-hmm. always mission driven, liking to work with different people from different backgrounds, trying to co-invest in opportunities and being innovative in how we try to find solutions to challenges in our community. So the Oshai Foundation, for those who don't know anything about it, and I'll be honest, I didn't know much about it. You know, we've heard the name forever, and of course, now it's tacked right on the side of Children's Hospital. It's the Oshai Children's Hospital. So I think we sort of look at it and don't really know the background of it. It was founded in 1940, and Oshai was the original founder of Trico, the inventor of the windshield wiper and all of that, and which I found fascinating. And then he founds this charitable organization with these contributions mostly toward health and education, I believe, this hospitals and schools was the original focus. But now it, it has taken on sort of a, a broader mission, which I'll, I'll ask you to expound upon in a, in a second. But what can you tell us about the history of the foundation and how it may have changed in the <laughs> 80 years that it's been around? Well, what a wonderful legacy, right? That one of our our major uh, industrial giants and innovators, mm-hmm. from John R. O'Shai, that set up this foundation to go on in perpetuity. And so, all these years later, we have because of the you know growth in the foundation, you know, we have the ability to increase the amount of grant making we do. But I'd say beyond that, O'Shai has always been known for really what we do beyond grant making. And and I would say that the organization has served as a catalyst and a convener, right? So bringing people together to help think through uh, solutions to community challenges, to collaborate on new initiatives. Oshai was part of one of the founders, along with the Community Foundation of the whole Say Yes Scholarship Program, Mm. you know, and helped uh, bring that here as an example. So, you know, I think over time, Oshai has been able to grow its ability to have an impact. We've grown the portfolio beyond, as you said, education and health to really a, a cross-section from community to neighborhood, uh, education, workforce, arts, culture, health. But it really, I think the role that we play goes well beyond grant making. We do a lot with the nonprofits that we work with in helping them with capacity building, whether it's helping them with their own strategic plans, their governance, their own team development and training. So there's a lot that Oshai does, I think, uniquely uh, in addition to the grant making that helps uh, the nonprofits that we support be more impactful in our region. And how does the how does the foundation work? Do you have people bring to you problem areas and say, can you help with this? Do you identify problem areas? Do you look around the community and say, here are places where our input might be helpful? Or is it strictly, where can we throw some money? Where can we fund some things that will improve 
the the community in general? Yeah, I think it's it's been a combination of we're known in the community, so people coming to us seeking support, right? And then we're evaluating does it kind of align with broadly our mission and our investment, you know, and focus areas. Mm-hmm. And a, a number of times we partner with other foundations, so other foundations might bring something to us and say, hey, do you want to jointly collaborate to support this? And then I think there's times like um, with the Buffalo Center of BCAT, that's Center of Arts and Technology, where we actually initiate. We see a need around workforce training and in particular focused on um, providing pathways for, for people who've been underserved and, and or longtime unemployed to get the training and skills they need and in, in, into jobs. Um, and so that was a model that, you know, Oshai initiated, saw as a national model and helped bring here and fund here. Mm-hmm. So it's a really a combination of both responding to community need. I mean, certainly during COVID, there was just a tremendous, everyone saw the need and in, in just how exasperated, frankly, the challenges were around people, especially in service sector jobs and some of the lower paying jobs that were particularly hard hit, you know, and then they, they lost child care, obviously health care, health disparities became that much more apparent. So we came together with the other foundations and created a COVID relief plan. And that was just a great collaboration where Oshai, along with a number of other community foundations, came together to, you know, increase the amount of really urgent and immediate support that was needed in our community. And is this the kind of thing that goes on on a daily basis? Meetings occur or people come to you daily uh, with ideas or requests? Tell us about your, this is kind of unfair because you've only been there since January 24th, but on a daily basis, how does this occur? Yes, and we have you know a portal on our website where people can put in a letter of interest. That's sort of how it starts, which is a very simple, you know, kind of overview of what their request might be and what they're seeking. And that'll start a discussion that with one of our program officers to understand what their needs are and see if it aligns and if it's something we can help with. So yes, I would say there's meetings and and, and inquiries every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, like I said, we're also working on a number of uh, major initiatives where it's us and other foundations coming together and co-investing in them. You know, uh, as I mentioned, Say Yes is one of those initiatives where we've been a longtime grantee. We're now funding the Boys and Men of Color uh, is a is one of the specific programs there. We're, we're recently committed money to fund their summer school program because, as you can imagine, the losses that we that we've seen in children's education, oh, yes. you know, during COVID and remote, disproportionately impacting. Uh, minority communities. And so Say Yes is coming in with, uh, you know, through supports uh, like us and others with additional funding to be able to take more kids into summer school to help them, you know, a summer camp to help them regain some of the losses, frankly. So, you know, some of it is we have partners around strategic initiatives that we collaborate on. And then as we think about you know, again, leading going forward, you know, the discussions that we're having are around, are there particular focus areas where we really may want to double down on? So we're still doing some of our basic human needs granting and potentially focusing around a couple of uh, key initiatives that will help really address those racial disparities that are, are underlying a lot of the structural poverty in our region. 
And I was just going to ask you about that because you, you mentioned earlier, both Rochester and Buffalo have tremendous problems with poverty, very well recognized as areas of tremendous poverty. Do you actually see any way that maybe not a solution, but this can be ameliorated in, in the near future? Well, so I think that's one of the things that it's not going to be an overnight fix. We didn't get here overnight, right? right. It is going to take a long-term view. I think it's going to take really strong partners, and that means nonprofit, public sector, private sector, education coming together. And I think it's going to take, you know, which there are a number of initiatives underway, really looking at systems change. So what are some of the structural inequities that continue to lead to the disparities that are causing much higher rates of poverty amongst, for example, the African-American community. And you can see there is absolutely a correlation with racial disparities in poverty. Absolutely. And then when you look at some of the underlying causes, you look at a very high cost of uh, housing in minority communities, especially in proportion to the income that they have, unhealthy housing. I mean, we still have, you know, houses that are filled with uh, lead paint. Lead paint, sure. Uh, that sure. then leads to health disparities, right? We have uh, challenges around, you know, because we sprawled as a region and many employers moved, you know, over decades outside of the urban area, but we really don't have a public transportation system that gets people outside of the urban area. You have a complete disconnect between where the jobs are and how people get to the jobs, right? So it's not it's not one thing. There's there's a whole number of underlying causes, and that's why I say it's not it's not going to just be us. It's really going to take uh, partnerships, cross-functional partnerships, coming together, understanding the underlying causes, and and working together to think about what systems have to change, what policies have to change, what maybe new or innovative approaches might we help seed or fund to address, you know, some of the root causes of those uh, challenges that are persistent in our region. And you think this can be done with, with these private foundations as opposed to government intervention? You think that Oshai Foundation, for example, could play a significant role in this? Well, I think we can play a role, but no, do I think we can do it on our own? Absolutely not. That's right. what I think it's going to take the partnerships, partners coming together that include absolutely government, private sector. And I do think that's a unique role that we can play. In. And I think from my background, I was in public sector. I've always worked with private sector companies and I've worked with a lot of nonprofits. So bringing that cross function together to align, because it's very rare that a foundation on its own is going to be able to help address some of those significant challenges. You know, we we really do need partnerships. Now, where I also think we can be impactful, though, is through those partnerships, obviously, we can then align some of our resources. But, but you know, something I had mentioned before, we do a lot of capacity building for nonprofits. So we could also align our capacity support with a number of the nonprofits to enable them to enhance their ability to work at addressing and solving some of these challenges. Mm. You know, whether it's uh, education and training for them, whether it's helping augment and help them think through new business models to uh, bring in more sustainable sources of funding to address some of these, you know, challenges but really helping uh, some of the nonprofits that are ultimately serving some of these, you know, 
constituents to become stronger so they can be more impactful in our region. Do you think that's the, the most challenging issue at this point? Or I know it's hard to prioritize, but are there other things that you think should be focused on or that you foresee being focused on that are also challenging issues? I think the most challenging is, and again, when you sort of just look at the data and the numbers, and I've been spending a lot of my first month reading a lot of reports that certainly pre-COVID, we all know that the economic indicators overall in our region were going in the right direction, right? However, you know, over, like I said, the last 30 years, there really were no gains on reducing poverty. So I do think that that is the major issue that needs focus. And then it very closely, when you start to peel back that complicated onion, you start to see all of the relationships to racial inequities. And, you know, Shai has been already committed to advancing racial equity. I look at this next chapter as sort of doubling down on that as a way to help, you know, some of the underlying challenges that are leading to persistent poverty. And do you think that you bring some sort of a focus on innovation that may have been, I don't want to say lacking, but you know, new ideas that you that you bring to the table that probably Oshai could benefit from at this point? I guess I think I, I bring an approach around innovation solution where I, I like to look at, look, I'm sure there's that there's other regions and communities who have addressed this and come up with innovative solutions. So sometimes it's looking out and saying, are there things that other we can learn from other communities that we can bring here? And sometimes it's really coming up with our own, you know, innovative solutions. But but that I think that that's more of an approach of let's really let's look at what has been happening and understand what has been working and what hasn't. And do we need to think differently about solutions to address a, a, a particular problem? Mm. And do you think that Buffalo, not, well, I shouldn't even say Buffalo, but let's say Western New York, do you think we're headed in the right direction? It, our economy is headed in the right direction. Our focus is headed in the right direction. There, there's a lot of talk, of, of course, about the medical corridor and, and, and that sort of thing. But do you think that we're headed in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, overall, I think, the, you know, again, from a regional economy, yes, I think a lot of the foundations have been planted, which is really good. We have a much more diversified economy, which is much healthier, right? Because then you don't see those tremendous drops if you're so over-concentrated, like in just uh, industry, industry, right? right. We have a very strong financial services sector, health education, still strong manufacturing base, a, a really rapidly growing tech economy. So the diversification, I think we're in a much stronger place. We certainly, again, sort of pre-COVID, we're on a good trajectory of seeing a growth in overall, in, you know, in jobs and opportunities. Finally, for the first time, we saw the, the uh, turnaround of the decline in population. Mm -hmm. So the last census finally saw, which is key, right? We can't, you're not going to keep growing if you keep losing population. Right. And a huge part of what drove that, that I think has just added so much to our economy, is immigrants uh, and refugees relocating here. That's actually the biggest part of the growth in the population that really helped drive that. And that has just been a tremendous, I think, asset in, in added uh, value of diversity to our community. So, you know, we have, I think that the foundation is in place. We have a growing entrepreneur community. I got to be involved in a lot of that, a ton of the infrastructure that didn't even exist, you know, 10, 15 years ago to help a new startup is now in place. A lot of innovation going on. So, 
So, you know, I think fundamentally we're absolutely headed in the right direction. There also has been a really strong emphasis on more smart growth and how do we reinvest in our urban centers and our village centers. And we recognize, I think, that we have to stop sprawling. So, you know, the fundamentals are absolutely there. The region's going in the right direction. However, we have left behind an entire part of our community. I'm sorry, that's exactly my next question, because I, I how do we make sure that there's broader participation exactly. in this right revitalization? That's exactly right. And that's exactly where now as a community, we have to come together and we have to focus because we're never going to have true prosperity for our region if we have uh, uh, you know, a huge percent of poverty and we're, we're, I don't know, third still, we're in the top 10 in the nation mm-hmm. yes. of uh, highest concentration of poverty. That That's not prosperity. So despite all of the wonderful things and the economic gains, not everyone is participating and has an opportunity to participate in that prosperity. And that's where we want to focus is how do we enable and support so that everyone can thrive and everyone can live in a healthy neighborhood and community, and everyone can have access to a good paying job and be part of our next generation of prosperity in this community. And now more than ever, right, you see it, employers are screaming for, we need more people, we need more talent. We have talent in our community. We have wonderful students graduating from our public high schools. How do we get them on the path to career or college readiness to be able to step into these jobs. And stay right here. Stay right okay. here to, to step into these jobs. Well, listen, Christina, I, I really appreciate your, you know what, I'm going to ask you this question. I may not ever, this will be the last question, because I, I often have a, ask a question, it's called my off-road question. And you've been so focused on community development for the largest part of your life. I'm wondering, is there a path you did not take that you sort of look back and say, I could have gone that way. What What's the road that you did not take, an interest that maybe you, you would like to pursue? You'd like to be a writer. You'd like to be a movie star, sing like Celine Dion, is, is something. Is there something in your, in your past that you think, oh, there's the road I didn't take? Yeah, and this is it. And that's probably the best thing about when I got the call about Oshai. Honestly, this is it. So I think I mentioned I've had the opportunity to be part of a lot of the economic initiatives and economic growth in our community, but it really bothered me that not everyone is participating in that prosperity. And so I do believe that through the lens of the foundation and the partnerships we'll continue to build on and uh, new ones that will form going ahead that we can help not alone, but we can help provide, you know, greater pathways to prosperity for everyone in our community. And honestly, that's the last thing. Like if I can play some role in helping advance that, I won't have a single regret. There's nothing else that I would have wanted to do. Wonderful. That's wonderful. I was delighted to be to have to do the research and to find out so much about John or Oshai. Oshai. And he's a paisan of mine, apparently. Did not know that that was an Italian name, but because we don't know about Oshai. You know, we we know about the foundation. We hear the name all the time. But who even remembers that it was from the Trico, tricontinental, whatever it was, that with, with the invention of uh, windshield wipers and so on, that he made his initial fortune. And we could do a whole podcast about that. So, Christina, I, I can't think of anybody I would rather have in charge of the Oshai Foundation's $320 million in assets. And I'm sure you're going to do great work. And uh, I hope to 
meet you in person someday. Likewise. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate so much you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you very much, Peter. Great to talk to you too. Thanks, Christina. Take care. Bye-bye. about you emptied the gas out of your snowblower you just i oh never mind so that was christina orsi lovely lady has a lot of big plans i really admire what she's doing i admire anyone who is going out of their way to make our city better and the oshai foundation certainly qualifies as that kind of an organization anyway I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I will be back in a couple of weeks with another interesting interview. This time we'll be going back to the theater world again to talk to Mr. Tom Owen, whose name came up over and over again. If you watched the Artie Awards, if you were there at the Artie Awards, Neil Raddus could not stop mentioning Tom Owen's name. So I thought, I gotta talk to this guy. And also, I know he will definitely add to the History of Buffalo Theater podcast that we did in the past. This guy was around for a lot of it. I don't know how I missed him first time around, but I'm going to remedy that in a couple of weeks. And lest we forget, Tribes opens this Thursday. RLTP's show, Tribes, directed by Doug Chigner. It's supposed to be a really terrific script, and I know you will enjoy it. Everybody I've talked to is certainly excited about it. So go to roadlesstraveledproductions.org and get your tickets for that. Also, if I may just do a little personal plug, I am also going to be appearing in a show that opens the next night. So go see Tribes and then come see The Children. It's a co-production between Red Thread Theater and the New Phoenix Theater. And you can go to their website, newphoenixtheater.org and get tickets for that. It's a three-person show and another terrific script. It stars Eileen Dugan, Josephine Hogan, and me. I'd love to see you there. Both shows are following all practicing protocols for COVID-19, so bring your proof of vaccination and bring your ID. And if it's the first show you've been to this season and you're a little worried about sitting there with a mask, I've been to a couple of shows already. I've sat there with a mask. You don't even notice it after a while. Believe me, it's worth getting out of the house. And now, before I leave you, I never get political, although I'm sure most of you know where I stand politically. But this thing going on over in Ukraine, it's painful to watch. It's painful to think about. I think about my own granddaughters when I see those families leaving their homes, leaving their land, running away to try to find some peace, and I wonder what I can do. And honestly, I don't know. I can't tell you what you could do, but if there's anything you can do to contribute to a Ukrainian fund locally or help out in some way, I urge you to do it because this just isn't right. And I don't know if there's anything we can do to make it right, at least certainly not in the near future. But my thoughts and prayers and all of my emotions are with the Ukrainian people at this time. That's all. It's tough to go back to just talking about theater and our own pleasure here in, in Buffalo, but I really hope that you will be able to enjoy both Tribes 
and the children. Till then, tell your family you love them. Tell your friends you love them. And I hope to see you at one or both of those shows. This is RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Mm-hmm.